Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at SmartBundle.com. The shaving foam was cool, and though a speck of blood grew on his Adam's apple, Leslie Himmerman was content, truly content. This may have been the first time he had felt this easy in 60 years. In the mirror, he saw a patch of silver approach from the bathroom door, and he felt warm arms wrap around his waist and lock lightly at his midriff. And he felt the warmth of a face between his shoulder blades, and the warmth of a body trail down the rest of his back. This would have seriously irked him on a typical day. Imagine the audacity of her to swan into a private ritual between man and razor. He's in the bathroom for goodness sake. And he has a bloody razor in his hand held to his neck. Imagine if she'd jogged him and she had to race him to A&E. Especially with her bad eyesight. They'd both end up wrecked in a ditch somewhere. But not today. He welcomed this connection today. And as he shaved... They swayed together, slowly and lovingly. And once he was done shaving off the final strip of stubble, which his wife, Sue, called whiskers, he turned to her, and they looked deeply into each other's eyes, hers a rich hazelnut, and his a dulled moonlight gray. There was a large glob of shaving foam clinging to Leslie's sideburn. Sue reached up and hooked it onto her finger, and drew long smeared streaks across the mirror. It's better in the dreams, she admitted. The pair admired the crude rendering for a moment. They knew in their wholehearted spirit what they must do. Leslie opened his wardrobe and leafed through his clothes to find his wedding suit, which he wore three years ago at his son Simon's wedding. Dark, almost navy blue, jacket and trousers, all with a white dress shirt and a bright yellow tie. To crown the magnitude of today's occasion, he would don the dark Homburg-style hat he'd bought in eastern France for 200 euros, a frivolous spend that embarrassed him, and as a man who avoided willful affectations, it never came out of the box, even on special occasions. But on this day, in the heady lightness of this day, damn it, it felt right. He'd wear his brown loafers that were on the shoe rack downstairs, but he felt a pang of disappointment that he hadn't the foresight to polish them and they'd have scuff marks all over. The symbol flashed through his mind. He looked through to the ensuite mirror, and the knot in his stomach quickly unraveled, calm again. Sue knew which shoes would be right today. It was quite a significant walk to the ruins, so it had to be the tan sandals which were comfortable but elegant, formal but fun. She wanted to look vibrant and alive, so she wore the sky-blue floral dress she'd worn to Simon's wedding. She prickled with naughty delight, thinking back to Michelle's face when a bridesmaid interrupted their conversation to tell Sue that her dress was beautiful, and quickly had to tell a very jealous Michelle that her bland green dress was nice too, and what was clearly a polite afterthought. She hoped that the dress might provoke a similar reaction today. Right then, shall we? Leslie patted over his jacket and trousers and then remembered he wouldn't need his wallet. 
so he left it on the nightstand along with his door key. The pair walked downstairs. On the porch, Leslie extended his right arm out for Sue to take. She went to loop her arm through, but... Oh, hang on. She disappeared back inside for a moment, and Leslie looked out over the small cul-de-sac. It appeared the tenors had already left. The Coxes marched forward, their children in tow. They all gave a cordial nod towards Leslie, who lifted his hat to them as they passed. The Coxes were followed shortly by old man Brennan, the widower, who lifted his cane to the sun and said, Lovely day for it. Not half, Leslie agreed, and they bucked their heads back and laughed skyward. And in the stretching tufts of white cloud, they could almost make out the symbol. He waved the widower off with his hat. These should be big enough. Sue held out two large pots, the good, sturdy pots for making soups and stews. Leslie looked down into the pot handed to him. In his vague reflection, he saw a man of vigor looking back. And the hat made this vigorous man look distinguished. The couple, arm in arm, walked to the end of the road. No one on the street had locked or even shut their front doors. They decided to walk the country path, as it would be more scenic than through the town, and they'd assumed, wrongingly, that by taking this route, they could avoid the foot traffic. Lots of people had shared the same idea. Throngs of families with children and babies and prams, and solo walkers, joggers, and cyclists were making their way towards the ruins. And almost all of these pilgrims had some kind of vessel. There were pots, pans, bins, jugs, plastic food containers. Leslie even spotted a fishbowl and a few urns. Sue and Leslie were intimidated by the stream of people trickling through the country path until they became members of this grand flood, and they both felt a beautiful elation at being part of such wholesome solidarity. People had come from all over the town and the surrounding villages. Sue noticed a woman whose trainers were so worn they'd had ripped. The bottom of her foot was exposed through the soles. Flesh was torn like the shoe fabric, and fresh blood oozed out over her peeled red skin. Leslie chuckled to himself and felt so foolish for worrying about the light scuffing on his own shoes. Well done, people would say. Tremendous effort, the couple agreed, and the people'd pat the walking woman's back, and she'd smile. Her face was so serene despite the stones and dirt eating away at her blood-soaked feet, and she soon disappeared into the funnel of people, leaving a spotted trail of dark red along the dirt and fallen leaves. After the leisurely walk down the country lane, the couple faced the charming dry stone wall that surrounded miles and miles of fields. Not long now, Sue said, stifling her giddiness. Someone had carved this symbol into many of the stones. This would have taken hours, maybe days, and people held their hands out and touched the stones as they walked. It was warm and blissful, and many people laughed as if the stones tickled deep in their palms. The ruins were close to the center of the field, and when everyone passed through the gate, they linked arms with their walking neighbor, or, depending on which hand held their vessel, they joined hands with the person in front or the person behind. They walked towards the ruins in a huge snaking line. The chain had to be broken occasionally to move the bodies. Deep trenches had been dug out to reveal more of the ruins buried by time. 
People had been digging throughout the night, some with their bare hands, and their body had failed them. So, in pairs, people took turns lifting the fallen by their arms and legs and dragged them away from the ruins, where they were thrown into a ditch at the edge of the field. Damn, damn shame, Leslie said, as he peered into the ditch and saw three lifeless bodies in the mud. The young man whose hand Leslie held dismissed it with a shrug. How it goes, I suppose. Sue shuddered at the sight but agreed. If they didn't make the cut, they didn't make the cut. A young man was sobbing. Once everybody felt comfortable in their spot, the snaking bodies unhanded each other and put their potter pan down on the ground in front of them. Sue and Leslie could see the sobbing man clearly now. He was desperately trying to filter through and find his place within the crowd, but had found himself restrained by two members of the procession. His once white t-shirt was covered in dirt and blood. From his wrists to his elbows, his arms were ripped apart. Bone and tendon could be seen through the split flesh. His limbs looked inhuman. He'd lost so much blood that he seemed to be swaying in and out of consciousness, driven by the same force that had brought all these other people together. Sue and Leslie couldn't be sure whether he had been one of the trench diggers, but looking at his legs, his knees were destroyed as well. It seemed he'd been so eager to get here that he had to climb over fences and crawl a huge distance on rough ground after injuring his legs. The sobbing quieted until there was no sound at all, and his body was carried to the ditch. The pilgrims stood around the ruins in concentric circles holding hands, forgetting about the brief misfortune they had just seen. They listened to distant bird song and enjoyed the rural tranquility. From the center of the ruins, four people cloaked in burgundy black robes and their heads covered dragged plastic tote boxes to the front of the crowd, which were full of broken glass. Glass from mirrors, bottles, and drinking glasses, all different shades and colors. Each person in the mass would take one piece and pass them along, and very soon the whole congregation had a small piece of glass in their hand. The four cloaked people emptied whatever shards and dust out from their totes onto the ground, and then knelt over the empty totes. Sue, Leslie, and the whole crowd instinctually dropped to their knees. Leslie had laid out his jacket onto the sodden earth so that his knees would not dampen or stain against the grass. Sue didn't care. She felt such a connection to this moment and to the experience that any sensation like the dew chilling her legs made her feel present and whole. In a grand, wordless orchestration, guided by an invisible, benevolent will, the myriad of travelers acted as one hand and lifted the glass to their necks. Leslie and Sue carved through the sinew and pulpy viscera of their respective throats, and their dark plum blood trickled out and into their silver pans. And as the sanguine gushed from the wound, the couple's thoughts were not on each other, but on the symbol, beautiful and bright, burning sweetly into their dwindling souls. <laughs>